Welcome to Scores and Borders, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by me, Sommelier Jill Mutt, and radio host Emily Reese. Today is part one of two parts about groups of people. I'm going to talk about a group of composers. Jill's going to talk about a group of super famous wine people. It's true. It's true. We're on Instagram at Scores and Pours. And if you like the show, please consider making a financial contribution on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash scores and pours. We've set up an awesome tier system that makes it really easy for you to donate and help the cause, buy some merch, all good things. Thank you to our existing patrons. We could not do this without you. Hello, Jill Mott. What up? <laughs> How's it going? Oh, you know, Monday. It's it's a Monday. It's a Monday. It's a good Monday because the sky is one of those. It's one of those bright, bright blue days out there. You're already in a way more positive place than I am today. But I've been on the phone with call reps. I was a call rep at one time in my very early years of life, and I get it. Yeah. Or I should say very early years of adulthood. Yeah. I get it. But man, sometimes that's a tedious process. Unless you have someone like Lisa today. I talked to Lisa and I was like, can I, I didn't not marry you, but I, in that <laughs> moment I may have proposed because she was so helpful. Yeah. And I think there are people yeah. that they're calling, mm-hmm. no pun intended, Yeah, was to be a call rep. They're yes. just like good at it and very helpful. Well, hosp- can- they're, they're hospitable. It's like it's taking care of someone. It's yes. a different bent on hospitality. Yes, it's not just transferring you to a lot of prompts where yeah. then there are just no people and you can't push zero and you can't push fucking pound. No. Man. <laughs> I know. Anyway, on a more positive note, yeah. today we are going to talk about very popular, uh, depending on what world you float around in, popular groups of people, you composers, Mm -hmm. and me, uh, some winemakers that started a huge movement decades ago that they really didn't even know they were starting. Wow. Amazing. These guys that I'm going to talk about knew knew exactly what they were, I mean, that's the whole purpose of it really, was to start a group and be a group of Russians. Yeah. I mean... (laughs) It's one of the most famous groups. There, there are many groups of musicians in classical music, and two are like, if you took one year of music history, you would definitely know about these two groups. I'm going to talk about five Russians. Uh, their nickname is The Five, or The Mighty Handful, or The Fist, uh, you know, because you got five digits on a hand, so the hand, the mighty hand. Weren't, weren't they also known as the mighty Russians? Yeah, oh, lots of mighty this and that. And Le Six, we talked about before, the Six took their name after the Five. Yes, and Le Six were French, mm-hmm. yes. Hence and, my and little even, Le Six. Yeah, and more, much more loosely collaborative than even the Five were. The Five were a little bit more of a composer collective than the six, I think. I mean, I, I the six got together and shared things too, but I don't think to the extent that the five did. But that whatever, that's not what we're going to talk about anyway. We're just going to focus on two of the five today. 
and then we'll talk about the other three. That's today. I'm going to talk about three people, yeah. mm-hmm. one of which was their mentor, how these four got going. Mm-hmm. And then I'll talk about the other two in our next episode, part two, obviously. I am going to muse today <laughs> on the amazing gang of four. Okay. They were a, and I'll just name them now, Marcel Lapierre, Jean-Paul Thévenet, Guy Breton, and Jean Foyard. You mention those names to anybody that knows anything about, first of all, natural wine, but second of all, like just great Beaujolais, because they're in the region of Beaujolais, south of Burgundy. Mm. And they, they would know who I'm speaking about. Um, they were dubbed the Gang of Four by their importer, Kermit Lynch, who took a big chance on them at that time because Beaujolais, back in the 80s and 90s, nobody was buying Cru Beaujolais. People were buying, mm. if they were not that smart in their wine drinking, meaning they might be have very high IQs but didn't have a palate, yeah. they, would, they bought a boat ton of Beaujolais Nouveau. Beaujolais Nouveau usually sucks. Yeah. And so when it, Cru Beaujolais, nobody knew that that could perhaps be a good thing. And most Cru Beaujolais was also made in a not-so-great vein anyway. So the fact that this importer had that egg, had a great palate, saw what they were doing, and decided to import each and every one of them is pretty miraculous. And we're, you know, drinking better for it, and the wine world is better for it. So That's awesome. I know one of my favorite things to that I've discovered through our friendship and through doing this show is how much I love Gamay and and good Beaujolais stuff. Yes, you do like you some Gamay. I do. And that's one of the reasons, because I could have focused, I, this could have had a bent, you know, a bent yeah. in a lot of different ways. And I wanted, I thought it would be really interesting for you. And I always love the opportunity when I get to try these four producers. We're going to try two Beaujolais today and then two Beaujolais in the next episode. And yeah, I thought it'd be really fun for you to be able to taste it. It's a really rare opportunity to be able to taste these four. They're not cheap um, for by you know wine standards and Beaujolais standards. A lot of these wines start in the low 30s and up from there, uh, especially when you get into their higher end cuvées. You know, a couple barrels of this, a couple barrels of that. Wow. But I wanted to stress first before we just get into it and before we get on to music, like why these guys are that important, because. They basically started this movement of natural wine, like I mentioned, but without really intending to. I mean, they all intended to grow better fruit and make wine a certain way, which I'll get into. But they weren't like waving this banner, having wine fairs and deciding, hey, everybody come to Beaujolais and come and taste our wines and we're going to start open. It was like they were just kind of doing their thing. Yeah. And everybody started to take notice because of the quality. And then other people started to, you know, it was like the trickle-down effect of like, well, we should, God, you know, yeah. the wines do taste more pure. And most people think that natural wine has been around forever and that natural wine is now like coming back to the way that we used to make wine centuries and millennia ago. That's not, it's true and it's not true. Bastardized wine and natural wine have been around for, since the beginning of time. 
People were adding, we've mentioned on the show before, people used to put salt in their wine, people put resin in their wine, people put all kinds of blood in their wine, different colorants, all kinds of shit. Yeah. And a lot of times it was to make the wine preserve longer, taste better. Mm -hmm. And nowadays that's no exception, right? What we know of conventional wine nowadays really started in the 50s and 60s. And so when I talk about natural wine and these guys starting a movement... I'm talking about the movement away from synthetic fertilizers and a great way of farming and a great way of making wine that really wasn't the norm a few decades after that popularization of, you know, monocrop agriculture, stuff like that. So, yep. so it really was a, a movement. Yes. Um, or it started a movement that was new at that time. Yeah. Musically speaking, when I am talking about these five Russians, it also was very much a movement and a very deliberate choice by uh, the leader of the group, who's a man named Mili Balakirev. Mili Balakirev wanted to create a Russian sound. And the not all of the five composers, but several of them, along with other Russian composers of the 1800s, because that's what we're talking about here, 1860s, ish, some of the most memorable, beautiful, colorful music to come out of the 19th century in, in the classical world. So it's just great music, and it's it's fun to uh, hear the, the color change, and I don't know. I, I would uh, love to, to play some music Yeah, let's you. listen. Should we? Did they ever compose together? Like, did they ever sit around and were like, Hey man, you're doing this. Well, I'm going to do that too. Or this is this is yes. a Russian sound. So why don't we all in our next whatever cha- piece of chamber music? Yes, let's. They did. Okay. In in some ways, maybe not the way you're envisioning it, but basically, um, so the Mili Balakirev started the or was considered the leader of the group. Okay, Mili Balakirev, born in 1837. Um, the group formed right around eight, 1856 was when they kind of started um, isn't that with re- two. Isn't that really, it seems like that's very fitting because in I remember like in my 20s, yeah. I was like going to change the world. I had all these, th- you know, all these visions of like changing mm-hmm. the world, all these, you know, mm-hmm. priorities. Like, so I could see that being like formative years of like wanting to create. Yes, they were young when they started this. And Cesar Qui, Modest Mazorsky... Alexander Borodin and Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov kind of would take uh, mentorship from Belakirev. And Belakirev would kind of be, would listen to their, the piece, whatever piece they were composing, he'd be at the piano playing and he'd say, what if you did this instead? And play it that way. And then they'd change their piece. And so in that way, they did work together. Balakirev even did had that kind of a relationship with Peter Tchaikovsky as well, even though Tchaikovsky was not a member of the five. Um, you know, Balakirev was just kind of a mentor uh, to young Russian composers, just wanting people to establish this sound. And was so- Was Tchaikovsky like too old? Because I, I remember looking his the dates up to figure out like how was yeah. he around during that time exactly? And he was, but like, yeah. why was he not, consi- why was he not rounded up? He just had a different view and a more conservative approach in terms of, and by that, gosh, I don't want to get in trouble by saying that, but 
For instance, one of Tchaikovsky's favorite composers, or maybe even his favorite composer of all time, was Mozart. Well, Balakirev and the Five didn't like Mozart, and they okay. didn't like Bach, and they didn't they didn't like anything, quote unquote, old, and they didn't see value in it. Cool. That's kind of cool. I mean, it's yeah. it's like obviously awful because we need to learn from the past, but yes. that's super cool that they were like, listen, let's mm-hmm. just let's go yep. there. Yep, and so they, uh, the Five. Many of them spent a lot of time with Russian folk music, but even some of the idioms that they ended up using in their music don't necessarily come from Russian music. Uh, They took a lot of inspiration from um, Turkey and southern Russia and that area, uh, like Afghanistan and what, what now is, right? Yeah. And so, and that's called orientalization of the music or orientalizing the music. And so it's Turkish influence, like we've talked about before on uh, Scores and Pours, with cymbals and bass drums and snare drums and tambourine, huge on the tambourine. And then it's scales that we've talked about before that I don't want to get too much into, just because why, Um, scales like the octatonic scale also is known as the whole half or the half whole or what is the, the octatonic scale, scale though because so it's an eight note scale instead of a traditional seven note scale and it's uh alternating whole steps and half steps okay so it's symmetrical which is fun there are two versions of the octatonic scale because it's an alternating series of whole steps and half steps so it'll either start with a whole step and then alternate Whole half, whole half, whole half, whole half. Or it'll start with a half step and alternate half, whole, half, whole, half, whole. So the whole half octatonic scale sounds like this. The half whole octatonic scale sounds like this. And listen for this line from this scale in this piece by Rimsky-Korsakov. And other composers used it too, like Debussy and Stravinsky down the road and and things like that. Um, But you can hear it through these works uh, that from this era. And so those are some of the things, uh, repeated rhythms. There are these things uh, often used called melismas. And melismas are like, um, uh, you know, if you're listening to like Beyonce or Mariah Carey. Yeah, I was going to say Mariah Carey. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> With the Russians, it wasn't, it was more um, localized in terms of how the flourishes would work. And I'll put examples of that in too. So yeah, 
so Balakirev was initially in The Five, the only one who was actually a professional musician at the time. Everybody else had a career of some sort, even though they were really young. And we'll talk about more of that with those individuals. But uh, let's hear some music by Balakirev. This is one of his most famous pieces for piano, also one of the, known as one of the hardest pieces for a piano to play. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to play it here on Scores and Pours, because Jill Mott loves a hard piano piece. Whoop and whoop. Uh, so here's Islami by Balakirev. sound Russian. I mean, it sounds Russian. Yeah. Sounds strong. the fun things about this piece is that Belakirev kind of legendarily took ages to finish a piece of music and Islami, he finished really fast. When was this written? 1869. And so this group you said went from about 1856 to right around that time, right? 18-ish, 70-ish? Yeah, right around that time. I mean, I'm sure they still hung out once in a while or they still like, well, I don't know. Kind of. Right? Okay. Yeah, it's a little complicated. Okay. Yeah. So if anybody's listening to this, says, Emily, why is this this man? Like, how would you say that this is different than, say, Cesar Cui that we're going to talk about? Oh, I mean, Balakirev was just a much better composer and wrote okay. way more interesting music than Cesar Cui. Okay. So more, obviously, more complicated, perhaps. In this in yeah. this instance, yeah. Okay. Yeah, just more, maybe more sophisticated a better grasp of melody. Mostly melody is what bothers me about Cesar Qui, is his phrasing and his melody. But yeah, this is just so much more sophisticated. and It's beautiful. Oh, this piece is great. There's an orchestral version too. Borodin didn't do that revision or didn't make the orchestral version, but I like the piano. I think the piano version is far superior. And it's just, it's super hard but it's really cool and fun and it has fun colors. This now this seems a little bit more of the theme meaning islami russian got it. Yeah. But then we have this oriental that now yeah. I'm kind of feeling that it's a little bit more like flowy and yes it's still very what we would know now is like when I think of Soviet, it has, you know, there's like certain sounds of two or three notes together that makes me think of that. Mm -hmm. But it also has this like 
like that that yeah. reminds me of something Turkish or something that is not of, I'm just going to use n- north of where Oriental lies. Yeah. Yeah. Is that fair to say or no? I, I So you, you think this sounds... Like this part. Yeah. It sounds like a little bit more kind of flowy and a little little bit more, not tropical, if you will, but yeah. like Ottoman, very slightly more Ottoman or yeah. what we would think of as in that period, Oriental. Interesting. Yeah. put some wine in our glass Yes. before we talk about the wine. But just to get the juices flowing, for Jules Chalvet would be like, yes, what are you waiting for? (laughs) Cheers to scores and pours. Two scores and pours. See how you can just see through it? Yes. Just such pretty gamay, like a nice ruby color, but that's very light in hue, not saturated at all. It just smells like juice. Yeah. Just juice. It doesn't smell like... This guy says alcohol. It just smells like delicious red juice. I love that that comes out of your mouth because this winemaker, before he passed away, said, "I just want my goal is to have our wines be made of 100% grape juice." And what he means is little, like to with no sulfur. If yep. he, if in certain vintages he can do that, seductive, oh. bright, a mm. little bit of like dried rose. Perfect amount of acid. Yeah. Like like dried raspberries and bread currants, like not yeah. too fragrant. They're not fresh. They're like dried. Yeah. Okay. Well, mm. I will we'll pour more in our glass and divulge who this is, but this is just to get us excited about where my story starts. This story starts, but my story, my telling of it yeah. is gonna start in 1907 with this guy by the name of Jules Chauve. He was born in Saun et Loire. So it looks like Saun et Loire, just north of the Macon. We talked about a wine from the Macon last episode. The Macon were in very south in the region of Burgundy, south of the Cote d'Or. And right when the Macon stops, Beaujolais begins. So he was born in the Macon. And Jules Chauvet was a winemaker. He was a viticulturist. He was a chemist. He was a researcher. Wow. He was an extremely gifted taster. He developed the INAO tasting glass, which if you grew up in the you know 70s through the 90s, you grew up probably, t- and in the early 2000s, nobody drank out of that where you're tasting and tasting wines for like scholastic academic. You're not tasting in a big, huge burgundy balloon. You're tasting in these small glasses, much like kind of when you go to a natty wine fair, you get like the smaller glass. It's got just a little bit tapered. The INAO glass looks like that. He developed that. It's supposedly one of the best glasses to taste from and be able to decipher certain aromatics. Interesting. And why that's important, the gifted taster part, was Jules Chauvet very much so his wine-making t- notes and his um, wine-tasting notes 
looked poetic, but they were not poetic. He was like, this does not have to do with poetry. And I'm super guilty of this because I get sick of writing raspberries and fucking strawberries and cherries. So you sort of, you don't invent aromas that don't exist, but you do dig deeper Mm. to kind of solidify things in your mind better. And Jules Chauvet said, floral isn't enough. Don't tell me the wine tastes like flowers. What flower? Now is the flower fresh or is the flower dried? What type of cherry? Is the cherry still on the tree? Is the cherry fresh? Is the And then he would say, he would find those compounds. Cherry has a compound, Bing cherry, dried Bing cherry has a compound associated yeah, with it, sure. with its smell. And he would analyze wines and figure out which compounds actually existed. <laughs> and so he, his wine... I mean, that that level of note-taking is insane. Yeah. So we know that this dude is super scientific in his background, right? Yeah. And in 1935, his father left him the negotiant business, which, like the family negotiant business. And if you remember in an episode of Scores and Pours weeks or months ago, negotiants at that time were, they might have had some of their own family fruit, but they bought fruit from others and wine for others and made it and then... They would put their name on it, and Bob's your uncle. And this negotiant business was in Chapelle du Guinchet, which was in northern Beaujolais, between, for those of you that may know the geography of Beaujolais, between Chena and Juliana. And the wine was the wines were so highly regarded that General de Gaulle, so those of you who have flown into de Gaulle Airport, named after him, drank it daily wow. and said, this is emblematic, light, fragrant depiction of Gamay, Mm -hmm. which it totally was. And he was a staunch opposer in the 50s and 60s when all these synthetic fertilizers and, you know, monoculture was was kind of coming of age. He was completely opposed to those. He was in favor of organic and or sustainable viticulture that would allow for, and composting, that would allow for proper yeast cultures to grow around the vineyard and on the grapes and thus allowing for terroir to really show through because those yeasts would then be used in the cellar and not commercial yeasts. He was very active in the wine world, we'll say from the 40s till his death in 1989. And from a very scientific background, which is rare even now, wine, he was saying, should be made with low sulfur, he said sulfur was fine, and native yeasts, and I'll go into all the other things he believed in in a moment, but I think the fact that most scientists nowadays would be like, put commercial yeasts in your wine because even though you'll lose a little complexity, it'll surely ferment through. You know, you won't have stuck fermentations and bacteria problems. Sulfur the shit out of it, sprinkle, sprinkle, make a good wine, most scientists would tell us, I think. And so that was an extremely rare thing in, in those times especially. So I could say more, but should we take a sip of wine and music again? Yes. Just to break up the Chauvet, because I am going to, I promise I will go into this amazing wine producer in mere moments. Wow, that's just not fair how good that is. I just want that every day for the rest of my life. So does everybody else that knows anything about wine. Whew, that is yum. Yep. Belakarev, let's listen to another piece that is, you can even more easily hear some of these elements that he wanted to create as Russian. You know, this is what this is what we do with our music kind of thing. So this is a tone poem. We've talked about tone poems before a few different times, and tone poems are just pieces of music that depict 
a non-musical source or come from a non-musical source, perhaps. So maybe a poem, like Tamara is a poem, or maybe it's about a painting or a book or something. So that's a tone poem. Um, this one is uh, an actual based on a poem, like I said, and... Was Tamara the god, like the famous queen of the Republic of Georgia? Yes. 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 So he started this piece in 1867, didn't finish it till 1882. That's much more typical of Balakirev to take a long <laughs> time to finish it. He had a little mental breakdown in there as well, so that's unfortunate. Um, it actually kind of came out of that mental breakdown a less cool person. Uh, so that's, he's not a good fella, really. Um, didn't end that could have been perhaps because of that mental breakdown and the Uh, results of it. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he was sick. And then after he was sick, when he was younger, he had like all these headaches and, and would have bouts of depression and stuff. And then he ended up having that mental breakdown and then he was just like really became like extra xenophobic and he, he he was anti-Semitic, which is just abysmal. And he just wasn't easy to get along with. He kind of was difficult in the first place and it just all got much worse after that and had some kind of final falling outs with some of the remaining members of the five who were still alive and, and things like that. But mm. anyhow. Well, let's listen to Tamara because Tamara is the... If anybody wants to read like beautiful poetry and Georgian stories yeah. based on Queen Tamara, they're some of the most lovely in all of antiquity. So I can't wait to hear this. Tamara, Tamara. Shut up. I love you. <laughs> oh, that's Tamara. great. Tamara. <laughs> okay. Emily right. Reese, okay. Where do you think they got it? No, I'm just kidding. I mean, okay, Maybe. <laughs> has a very slow and quiet opening picks up in the middle this piece is about 20 minutes is that is that melisma that i'm hearing yes See, now this to me seems like, this. I know this is incorrect, but like Russian harmonics. I know that's not even a thing, but like to me it sounds like a chromaticism that's Russian, but the air of it feels very late 1800s. Yes. Like it. Yes. Yes. This is like, if you listen to, for instance, if you listen to the opening of um, Tchaikovsky's uh, fantasy called Romeo and Juliet, it sounds so similar to this opening. And if you're familiar with Rimsky-Korsakov's piece called Scheherazade, there are so many similarities, and, and it's just so of that era. 
Let's go ahead and move forward to another spot where we'll hear more of those elements. This is the London Symphony Orchestra with Valery Gergiev conducting. So you're hearing tambourine, bass drum. Yeah, very like of that Turkish influence. Yep. You're hearing repeated rhythms over and over again. That's another thing. Remind us what that's called. Ostinato. triangle as well. You mm-hmm. can hear the little triangle in the percussion. But it does just seem like, I know that obviously Debussy got loud and Ravel got loud. I get yeah. that. Yeah. But it does seem like with a certain weight and like not a thickness because that's not what I mean, but like there is this sort of like forward quality that is I feel like they've I shouldn't say they, Balakirev has succeeded in yeah. making it sound quote unquote Russian. Well, yeah, and it's because of him and composers like him and Mikhail Glinka, and who wasn't a part of the five either. Um, but just these Russians from the 19th century, yeah, they they wanted to create this, so they managed to come up with sounds and things that people were occasionally referencing in their music. Because I mean, when we talked about Turkish music and its influence on classical music, we were going back. 100 years before these guys, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's been around that influence, but they really embraced it. And so I think one of the reasons that Russian music has such a presence is the use of bass drum and kettle drums or Mm, timpani. And those big, big drums, not that those composers that you mentioned wouldn't use them. Yeah. Of course they did. But it just has such a presence in a piece like this, and it really makes it sound big. Yeah, and kind of stately. And we'll hear all these elements again in next week's episode, which is pretty cool. Sweet. Yeah. Before we go on to actually tasting this wine again and talking about the producer, Marcel Lapierre, one of the main things that Jules Chauvet was a proponent of was cold or as cool as possible carbonic maceration. Now, we've talked about this on the show before, but he wrote plenty of essays on carbonic maceration. So the intracellular fermentation that happens, I'm going to explain it right now because it'll make the whole show make sense when I mention it nine other times. Um, <laughs> so there's, if you put grapes in a vat and you pile them all up and they you don't crush them and destem them, they're whole clusters and you just toss them in. If you pump CO2 into the bottom, CO2 or, or not, but you you leave your the top of your vat with a, like a little airlock, what's going to happen is... The weight of the top of the bunches are going to create, they're going to squash the bunches at the bottom. And you're going to be left with some fermentation happening with the native yeasts that are on the bunches of grapes. 
that's going to, CO2 is a product, obviously, of fermentation. That's going to push any oxygen out, and you're going to be left with no oxygen in this container, right? Whatever your container is. And what's going to happen is the berries underneath the juice are going to ferment. They're going to kind of get crushed, but they also might ferment within themselves. But then there are going to be berries that are completely exposed, that are still intact, I should say, and they're going to ferment within themselves. And what happens? You get a decrease in acidity. Gamay can be ragey. You can get, <laughs> you get a little bit of a decrease in tannin, but you also get lifted aromatics, very aromatic. And Jules Chauvet loved him some aromatics, obviously, as you know, noted previously. He also wrote a lot of essays on malolactic conversion slash fermentation. And that's when that malic green apple acid goes to the lactic. It happens in almost all red wines and malic acid gets converted like that green apple acid to like a lactic acid. So a little bit more milky and it just makes the wine like easier to drink. Hmm. And sometimes the reason why his his journaling on that was so important was sometimes alcoholic fermentation, normally it starts. And then after al alcoholic fermentation, you have malolactic fermentation that starts. Okay. And in a great cellar, it happens naturally. Well, if you don't have low enough pH, meaning high enough acid in your wine, you can have that malic acid bacteria, because it is a bacteria that starts that, can start at the same time as alcoholic fermentation. And when you're ready to bottle your wine, your wine can be defective and you can't smell it or taste it. And then you bottle it and then you open it up three months later and you have this like effed up gross wine that you need to get tested in a lab to know that that's around. Wow. And so Jules Chauvet was like very interested in malolactic fermentation and making sure that your wines went through carbonic to alleviate some of that. But enough said, Jill, get to the freaking gang of four. <laughs> Marcel Lapierre had been making wine in the village of Morgon, or Ville Morgon, in Beaujolais, in the late 60s and 70s. He took over the family domain, I think, the year I was born, like 78, maybe a little bit before that. And he went to university. He learned how to make wine in the Macon. And he was sick of the recipe to make wine at the time, which was you're picking unripe grapes. Now, this was Beaujolais Nouveau par excellence Whoa. right now. You pick unripe grapes, and you may be thinking, well, why is that bad? Think of an unripe apple. Yeah. All, all kinds of acid. Yeah, or an unripe banana even. Yeah, there's no yeah. not enough sugar for the yeast to feed on, right? Whether it's conventional yeast or not conventional yeast. So what they would do is they would pick unripe grapes to thwart off that bacteria. Then they would add sugar... That's called chaptalization. To, to make it sweeter. No, they would do that to give the yeast something to feed off of and right. raise the alcohol so that the potential alcohol could be reached because that's a law. You have to have potential alcohol of X. Then you'd heat up the juice to kill any bacteria and to commence the fermentation just running along swimmingly. And, of course, you'd be adding commercial yeast. And in the early 80s, Marcel Lapierre was like, dude, I am sick of this. I don't want to drink my wines. I feel sick, you know, I guess not, yeah. not to use the same word twice, but he was like getting sick off of drinking his own wine yeah. and was like, I want to experiment with lower sulfur. I want to just pick riper grapes that actually taste like something. Like when you think of an unripe banana, it doesn't taste like anything. It just tastes like yep. green and gross. And so he sought out Jules Chauvet. He had heard about the work he was doing. 
And he started to make wines from better quality fruit, Mm. from riper grapes. He started to sort out any unhealthy grapes in the vineyard and on the little sorting table before they get processed in the the winery. He didn't chaptalize. He used low or no sulfur, depending on the vintage. And he employed the carbonic maceration slash whole cluster method that I just mentioned. And he didn't filter. And his wines ended up becoming like... People that started having natural wine bars in Paris, obviously decades later, would like taste his wine, and that's how they'd go to the, I'll say, dark side, that is natural wine. They yeah. would taste Marcel's wine and be like, holy shit, Beaujolais can be like this? And then they'd learn what he's doing. Then they'd learn about Jules, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, I've heard of Jules Chauvet. Oh, he's one of Jules Chauvet's mentees. Okay. And so that's kind of what started the Gang of Four. It yeah. started with Marcel. And let's taste his wine. Yes. You mind if I give you a little personal anecdote with Marcel? Please. With please. regards to Marcel? So I'm at a wine shop. It's about 2008, 2009, I think. I had come home from a couple different harvests. Um, I was living in Chicago at the time. I had come home from a couple different harvests and having worked in cellars. And I was at this little rinky-dink wine shop. And we weren't natural by any means, slanting. And there was this guy who was in the California little section of the store. And he was like, and I went up to him and I was like, sir, can I help you with something? Um, you looking for anything in particular? And pardon me, I'm going to like French accent because it just makes it, I think it just makes the story cuter. He was like, uh, yes, if you could point me out to a California producer that is not using lots of sulfur or lots of, that is not filtering. And I was like, well, uh, Sorry, but California these days, in 2008, 2000, there weren't many of those, right? So I yeah. pointed them out to like one or two. Yeah. And I was like, I'm sorry that we don't have a lot of those. There's just not a lot of producers doing that that we have access to here in Chicago and just not many doing that anyway. Then we started to chat about sulfur and then we started to chat about all these other things in the cellar. And he said something like, oh, are you going to taste with us? And I was like, yeah, of course. And so then I knew he made wine. He was there to taste us on his wine. And I should have known because he's got glasses yeah. that are thicker than I am. <laughs> I should have known who he was, but I, I didn't know. And he was like, what is your name? And I was like, oh, my name is Jill Mott, you know? And he's like, I am um, Marcel Lapierre. And I was like, oh, oh, oh my God. <laughs> and I like knew who he was when he said his name. I was like, well, of course. And I remember that just tasting wine with him and talking. He was just, It was such a beautiful experience. And now fast forward, you know, 2010 was his last vintage. Nobody knew mm, that yeah. back in 2000 eight or whenever. So his son and daughter, uh, Mathieu and Camille, looks like Camille. Camille, they both um, are making the wine now. They've wanted to be in the wine profession for some time. I think that's somewhat rare in Europe. A lot of people don't want to follow in mom or dad's footsteps and have an arduous life as a viticulturist or a a winemaker. So that's really cool that they wanted to forward the family business and make some fantastic wine. Let's drink it. (laughs) Let's. (laughs) So he is in Morgon. He's got, so we're in a sub-region of Beaujolais. Okay. Mostly granite soils here throughout the entire region of sub-region or crew of Beaujolais. It's mostly granite soils, but there are some varying ones. And that's a theme here. Most of the wines we'll taste have primarily granite soils. He's got about 16 hectares under vine, and he's certified organic with all of his fruit and this is his flagship wine. This is the wine that he's got almost 
over half of his fruit goes into this wine here. He makes a Julianas, which is a different site, different crew, but this is 60-year-old vines. He uses CO2 to pump in to make it completely oxygen-free. Mm-hmm. And then this is a carbonic maceration that lasts like weeks. Wow. So to scores and pours. To scores and pours to Marcel. To Marcel. So on the nose and on the palate, you can tell that it's done in some old oak. You know, it's not like the stainless steel fermented, rough and tumble, fermenty gamay that we've had a couple of those on the show before, and they're every bit as delicious. But this, you can tell that, you know, there, there are like 30 plus years of experience here. You can tell that it's refined gamay. You know, we've really honed in on how to make this taste like Morgon as opposed to like how to make us want to drink it out of a porron because it's glue-glue <laughs> and blah, blah. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I think it's really amazingly delicious. And it's funny to me how after you take those first few sips and the acid really hits you and then it just kind of becomes less noticeable later and just becomes like a part of the whole experience. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Like the acid isn't, sometimes acid can be... Like this, I think, is like a right, right around the medium level, right? You can tell that that carbonic yeah. maceration has allowed it to settle, but it's not an, and to lower. But I love that because sometimes you have Gamay and other grapes where it's like acid all day, and mm-hmm. I love that. But then it's kind of disjointed Yeah, where I totally agree with you. You taste it, but then it's sort of like a part of the whole package. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because it really hit me in the face the first time we tasted it. Mm -hmm. And then coming back to it, however many minutes later, it's much more toned down, but the those dark, like dried red fruits are still so juicy and amazing. What do you think about the tannin? I kind of feel the same way about the tannin now that you mentioned that. It's like Mm -hmm. of this medium nature. You know, you get it from the fruit and the oak, of course. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's like it doesn't stand out. It's just very elegant. Yes. God, fucking Marcel and the and Matteo and Camille. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh. Sophisticated. It is. I very, think is a good word. I think that. it is. Yeah. And at the same time, it's not like this is some of the best of the best. Mm-hmm. And what I love about great crew Beaujolais from these guys, you're getting the best of the best. And it's not two thousand dollars like yeah. going, you know, fifty miles north. Amazing. Which is Amazing. Kind of great. And you get every bit as, I I don't want to say every bit as much complexity because I don't mean to dumb down a lot of what's going on in Burgundy, but I just think you get as much pleasure yeah. as you do from Marcel, very great. what a Marcel. guy. So great. So Cheers. great. Thank you so much for sharing this today. Thank you to Eric Freeberg and the New France team for having all of these available to us because without them, we'd just be swimming and... Really bad Beaujolais or a lot of natty, natty, fermenty, estery Beaujolais and wouldn't have the four greats. Amazing. How are we going to follow up Monsieur Lapierre? With probably the most mediocre member of (laughs) Okay. Oh, I feel bad even saying that. It's really unfair. I know because I kind of liked it like lots. Cute. I mean, I I did only because it felt very sincere and knowing his history of like being a Millie general and, you know, just that was his main, obviously we know as Millie generals, your life probably is just all about rigidity and very committed. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. 
He, he was composing and like before, like, well, I was trying to learn how to drive in a high school parking lot. This dude is composing. <laughs> so like, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of cute. It is. Yeah. I mean, Cesar Qui was the second member of the five. That's who Mili Balakirev uh, joined up with first. And that happened in 1856. Cesar Qui, as Jill mentioned, was an imperial army general eventually. Mm-hmm. Big fucking deal. I mean, he was he was an <laughs> expert on military tactics and, you know, like taught courses on it and wrote books about it. Uh, so first and foremost, that's who Cesar Qui was, was a, a military officer uh, specializing, specializing in fortification techniques and stuff. Secondary to that, he was a music critic. And wrote hundreds of articles. Fast forward a hundred years. Now you're just a blogger. Yeah. You're like, I just like to blog and I like to be the Yelp of today. Now yeah. he's like the Yelp of yesteryear for classical music in Russia. Yeah. Dope. Yeah, he was like the the music critic guy for the paper. You know what I mean? And then on top of that, wrote a bunch of essays on, and, and stuff. Like 800 different articles on, you know, Russian music and Russian art song, on opera, but also on... Not just Russian music, but primarily Russian music. Then Cesar Qui was a composer. So he had other things that he was a little when you say a composer, at. he w- meaning like pr- like not professionally but semi professionally. Yeah, as yeah, because he was p- composing as a little kid. He was composing yeah. as a little kid, um, mm-hmm. but he didn't like go to music school or anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, neither well, did Balakirev, for that matter. Oh, he didn't. So, no. No, Whoa. like none of them really. I mean, they ended up there, but they didn't start there. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Rimsky-Korsakov was a naval officer when he was 19 years old. So he was in the, in the Navy on a boat for years before he, you know, in mid-20s, he got out of the military, but he still did things uh, like uh, with military bands and such or something like that. So yeah, they they were all in different careers other than Balakirev, And Balakirev never had music theory training. He never learned counterpoint. And since he didn't like Mozart or Bach, he certainly didn't learn it from them. Well, and so that's that's what I mean when I when I think about you know the level of all these composers and their talents. It's like, well, I could say that Cesar Qui is mediocre, and he probably is when I'm comparing him to Korsakov or you know Beethoven or Tchaikovsky. But in the end, this dude didn't know about counterpoint. It'd be like someone who really knows about wine but isn't perhaps trained on the classics, like, you know, to have the sort of context to be able to be good at both. And so then you have a wider breadth and then you're just more well-rounded and just kind of better in your day. Well, and he, like, actively had public disdain for that kind of – it was like he mm -hmm. actively did not want to learn those things. So, I mean, to me, that's a little not okay. Uh, You know, I mean, if you're – I mean, you can't be a well-rounded wine professional without that understanding. You, you're not going to be as well-rounded as the person who well, is. Well, and there's a lot of people that like to right now, they shat on that. This is going to be a little aside, but I think people love it. That's a <laughs> shat right now on the sommelier profession. Everybody's like, sommelier, it's douchey, it's blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know what? Maybe if you're a white male, that is. But for a female having gone through that, that was just as much work. But it was also a lot more work to try to supersede a lot of the 
preconceived notions yeah. of, of that, you know, everybody knows that women, they're better tasters, but just like the, it's a male dominated field. It has yeah. been, and it is right now, even though that's slowly going away. Yeah. But so I think that anybody that's going to say like, you just don't need to know about the classics and like suddenly that's stupid just to say like learning counterpoint is stupid. Well, maybe it's you just didn't want to do it. I also understand the need for some people they just need to have that whole like isolative, I'm living in now, I'm yeah. living in the future. Yeah. However, we know that one of the best musicians of our time, our time, Bjork, mm-hmm. knew classical music before she knew anything else yeah. and was trained in all those things. Yeah. So I do think that anybody that says that they don't want to learn about the classics is sort of like saying, hey, let's not learn about the past so we don't commit wars anymore. Yeah, I'm going to get off my soapbox now. <laughs> But I appreciate the time for that platform here on Scores and Pours. Thank you very much. I mean, honestly, I think it's absurd if if someone came up to me uh, knowing what I know now, which isn't very much, but it's a lot more than I knew three years ago, say. So let's say somebody came up to me right now and said, I want to be in the wine profession. I want to make a living in the wine world somehow. But I don't think the sommelier shit matters. I would just be like, you're crazy. It matters big time because it's part of that world. And well, and also it depends on like how you go about it too, because yeah. you can go about it being like, I want to be wearing a suit and tie and delivering wine to suit and tie people. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. And I get why people don't want to do that. I also get why people don't want to taste corporatized wines For in order sure. to get a piece of paper. However, learning about certain areas that, that training helps you with is paramount to understanding a lot of where we have come in wine. And so if you just start yeah. in the wine business, you're like, I'm just going to learn like daddy wine. Whoop, whoop. You're going to have a blast, <laughs> but people are probably going to take you about 50% seriously as if you knew a lot about what was, what was going on exactly, and how we got here. And that's exactly what happened with Block? High five from across the booth. From across the booth, whoop, high whoop. five. Yeah. Yep. So okay. it's, it is. God, I love how we just came full circle. Yeah, we did. And it is hard to like, because obviously I listen to Block Rev's music and I like it. I don't like all of it, but I like a lot of it. And it, it is fun and beautiful and memorable and colorful and things that I like in music. Of course, it's going to affect your music in some way if you haven't studied those things. Because we look back and at composers like Mozart or someone who suddenly at some point in their life decides to study Bach and then their music changes. So, I mean, it's just... Yeah, it, it, I get it. it, it totally. Is, it is what it is. Um, so back to Cesar Qui. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Cesar Qui. Um, Cesar Qui, you know, didn't like modernists like Debussy. He didn't like Richard Strauss's music. In addition to not liking, you know, Mozart, Bach, but Qui was on that bandwagon too. My eyes right now are like scrunched. Yeah, like when how she can was, you not when, like you, when she was like, you can't, you didn't like Debussy. I was like. Yeah, she's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> now how do you feel about Cesar Qui? <laughs> Fair. Um, but, and there is, you know, I mean, Let's just listen. Let's just, Let's just listen. listen. Let's just listen. I'm not even going to say anything. Let's just listen. This is a piece that he wrote called Kaleidoscope. It's a piece. It's 24 miniatures, as they're called. Uh, so just little pieces for violin and piano. <laughs> 
Here we go. Written in 1893, by the way, his Opus 50. make an appearance audibly in Bridgerton. <laughs> I mean, this is like very like of a time and place. Yes. To me, this feels a little bit from a non-technical, like technically musically trained standpoint. It sounds little, a little less Russian, but, yeah. but actually, I don't know, because it's like, dun, 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 yeah, it's just, just waltzy. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if Queen's music often sounded Russian, as it were. Not nearly. His name like, doesn't sound Russian. Wasn't well, he like his, French? His father was French, but his mother was Lithuanian. But French, uh, no. He was born in what is now Lithuania mm-hmm. and grew grew up there. So I mean, he's just like you would say of someone that happened in America, you would call them American. You would not call them wherever they came from. Right, because they were born and raised here, so they're from you know. It's so funny. I just think sometimes, as Americans, when someone mm-hmm. asks you, well, "Where are you from?" We either say our state, but mm-hmm. depending on the context of the conversation, a lot of times people are like, "Well, I'm Norwegian. I'm Icelandic. I'm well, of course." You know. But in most situations, if someone's going to walk up to me and say, "Where are you from?" I would say I live in Minnesota, but I grew up in Iowa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sometimes I might say I was born in Texas. But I'm not Texan. Mm-hmm. You know no, I, mean? I, I just when yeah. I que I, when I looked up and I yep. teach definitely parents from elsewhere. Definitely a French dad. And one of my favorite things is that there is an album of French chamber music that I found online that has music by Cesar Cui on it. And I'm like, do they know he's not French? Because he's not French. Like, <laughs> you're never going to find anywhere that says he's a French composer. He's a Russian composer. For sure. Yeah. Let's listen to one more from him. Oh, yeah. This um, is really where I think Cesar Cui, if he's going to shine, it's going to be in his songwriting. He married a singer, wrote music for her, and he just was much better, I think, at at vocal type things. And so this piece, you're not going to hear a singer, though. You're going to hear a really great Russian cellist whose name is Misha Maisky play this song. The song is called The Burned Letter. And so this is an arrangement, not for voice and piano, but the cellist is playing with the piano. And it's Misha Maisky is a genius cellist and really brings out the passion in this piece. I love this version of this piece. So here you go. Cesar Cui, The Burned Letter. Russian cabin, cold. Yes. Drama. Drama. Scarfs and mittens. I just burned a letter. I'm burning a letter from my love.
Well, I'm glad I'm not PMSing. I don't know if we need to eliminate that or not, but wow. Okay. <laughs> Do you mind listening to his tarantella? was actually written while he was in the, in uh, the gang, gang of five the, or the, excuse me the gang the, of five <laughs> sorry the five the five and i feel like it sounds like like what they were going for you know and they were like trying to like it just sounds older and it sounds russian And so I love that you played those other two because it's so, because they showcase like where he, you know, obviously where he came from, but seemingly more elegant and then even more so. Mm-hmm. And this, I mean, it just, <laughs> it just sounds like a like very patriotic. Yeah, it's totally got that, like, Russian military with the cymbals and the bass drum again. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Definitely that Ottoman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, we are coming and we are awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for playing that. I thought that it's was great. super interesting, just retrospectives of, like, his work, which is cool. Okay, you ready for some Guy Breton? I am, I'm very ready for some Guy Breton. Morgon is a tiny village. Ville Morgon is a tiny village. 2,000 people, just over 2,000 people. So the word travels fast. And this guy, his name is Guy Breton. His friends call him Petit Max. <laughs> He's not Petit, and his name isn't Max, so right. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> but he took over the family domain in the mid-'80s and... At that time, not unlike many people in the world of wine in those days, the grapes were being sold to the co-op. Could get money for it, Bob's your uncle, go to bed, don't have to have all the machines to process the wine and whatnot. Yeah. Meaning like a press or if you could afford it, some other cool things. And Guy Breton very quickly heard about Marcel Lapierre and how that like how his wines were better, how his yeah. wines tasted different, how Jules Chauvet made a huge impression. And within like minutes, basically, he was making wine a lot like a la Chauvet, we'll say. Okay. And so he was taking, right now he's organic and he was almost organic from the get-go. He's harvesting, I say late, but I mean optimum ripeness. So we have enough sugar while still maintaining acidity. Sorting, he's using native yeast to ferment the wine. He is using that cool carbonic maceration that we talked about. And then he's aging like Marcel, but you know, they are all doing it for less, most of the time, less than a year. Like they're not, 
extending their aging, like, oh, this needs to be like, I'm going to taste it in 20 years when it's ready to drink, I'm going to release it. It's like usually shy of a year, it's ready to be bottled. And in this case, he's using little sulfur. He does use it once in a while throughout the process as opposed to just at bottling. And then he's bottling unfiltered. Now the difference here, Guy Breton has four hectares as opposed to Marcel's 16. Wow. So he's, and his production is about that, like 25 to 30% of what Marcel's is. The fruit is all in Morgon. We're like in Morgon, but we're west of Morgon. And Morgon kind of slopes eastward. And it's like higher altitude in the west and then gets lower as we go east. His stuff is all, a lot of it is in this sub-area of already a sub-region called <laughs> Lucharme. And Lucharme is known for its granitic soils, of course, but also its higher altitude. So we already have like grapes that are rip-roaring in acidity here. 80-year-old vines. This is a like a two-hectare plot that we're talking about here. And... He loves aromatics. He's a Chauveist at heart. Cute. So he does the carbonic maceration, cool carbonic, but he does it for way less time than Marcel. Oh, interesting. He will taste it, and when it's ready, he'll press it. He might let it macerate a little bit longer, but he doesn't, he likes it more lifted. And I don't want to say less elegant because it's definitely not the case, but he wants a little bit more of that, like, sure. estery quality. Oh, it's estery. It reminds me of lipstick. Red lipstick. Yeah, and like dried, dried potpourri on the on the yes. nose. Yes. When you kind of get past that lipstick and that yeah. little bit of oak, because he does age in oak as well. Old oak. Correct. Now the difference here, we're tasting 2019 Lapierre, 2015 Guy Breton. Wow. So this is now five to six years old. Whereas this Morgon is recent, or excuse me, this Lapierre is like recently yeah. released. This is like if cherry starburst were healthy and natural. That's what this is. Yeah, I could totally see that. Like kind a of like natty a candied, cherry candied. Yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, the nose is deeper. I think that comes from the older vines. I mean, like I said, this are you know in the sixty-ish realm for the for the Lapierre Morgon. Here we're at like eighty years old, and they're higher altitude. Everything's more concentrated when sure. you're at higher altitude. Okay. What about? Knowing that this is older by five years, well, mm -hmm. in this case, four, four years, yeah. 2015 versus 2019, what do you think of the acid level? Also, sorry, I didn't mention, what do you think about the color of that Guy Breton? Because it looks a little bit, little bit brickier, yep, right? Yeah, a little brickier, definitely. Yeah, that one's, the other one is purplier. Marcel's is purplier. Yep, so that's yeah. the, when we are talking about the Guy Breton being a 2015 vintage, it's those anthocyanins have started to fall out. We're getting a little bit of a mm. brickish color. Mm -hmm. So which one has more acid? Side by side, it seems like Guy Breton has more acid, but that can't be right. It always takes me forever to do this because I have to let my mouth salivate to tell me how much acid. It's got penetrating acidity, and I think that's age of vines, altitude. That's the Guy. Honestly, I mean, they're very, very similar. Yeah, and I are. think that comes from the fact that if we were comparing, these are apples to apples, but yeah. now we're like pink lady apples to <laughs> golden delicious apples yeah. because of the fact that one is four years older than the other. In theory, that ash should, should be lower, right? It should like have decreased with time. But because it's older vines and higher altitude, yeah. they're probably like, 
it's diminishing at a rate that is, it was screaming, maybe even undrinkable when it was released, whereas now it's like super pleasant. And the LaPierre is brilliant. And I've opened decades old LaPierres and they're like, lovely. <laughs> so yeah, definitely different acids, beautiful acids. Yeah. Did you ever meet Guy Breton? I have never met Le Petit Max yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but 2021 is young mm-hmm. and a trip is in my near future. Well, here's to part one. Here's being part flipping one. brilliant. Oh, man. They're, groups of people get together and do wonderful things. It's very true. To the gang of four. And the mighty five. And the scores and pours. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this bountiful episode and support us financially cha-ching, at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. That's also where you'll find a link to hoodies like the one I'm wearing today, which is nice and warm and toasty if you're in northern climates. We're on Instagram at scoresandpours. You can send us a direct message there with any comments. And please do give us a rating where you listen to your podcasts. That'd be amazing. Available on Spotify, iTunes. Amazon, Pandora. We're we're everywhere. Yeah. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. Joe. June's little kitty. (laughs) 